0: please the podcast. Good day, listeners, and welcome to On Trial. I'm your host, Christopher Janeiro, a commercial litigation lawyer with a focus on trial practice at Foley and Lardner in New York. For the second episode of the On Trial podcast, we sit down with Lisa Noller, a former federal prosecutor with 25 years experience and chair of Foley's government enforcement defense and investigations practice. Lisa is the second of two guests to identify the opening statement as the most important part of trial. She also talks about how to keep a jury engaged and explains how being nimble is the most important skill of a trial lawyer. Of course, Lisa also shares some trial war stories, including a witness identification right out of a movie. Please enjoy the podcast, and I'll be back with you for summation. Lisa, thanks so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So let's just get right into it. What is the most important part of a trial in your view?
1: Christopher, the most important part of a trial is the opening. It is your your first impression with a jury. They don't know who you are. They've likely never been in this circumstance. Frankly, a lot of them don't want to be there. And so if you can make their time worth their while in a minute, I think it reaps rewards. Also, it is your first opportunity to craft your story and everything should follow. So you're able to grab their attention and thereafter, it's up to the evidence, which you already know and love, right? And isn't changing to maintain that attention grabber that you had at the very beginning.
0: And how do
1: you do that? You have, I think, one statement to summarize the entire case and then one paragraph to tell them why it matters. And then somewhere, depending on the length of the trial, between five minutes and I would say 30 to 40 minutes to explain how you're going to deliver on your first sentence. Right. So picking the first sentence Is critical. So thank you for the opportunity to do this. It, It actually caused me to go back and look at some of my prior openings. And true to form, I have one sentence, right, that is the attention grabber. So here are a couple. Greed is a powerful motivator. Follow the money. No money down, cash back at closing. Both of these were lies. So those are, I mean, if you're not intrigued at that point, then probably you really don't want to be a juror. Mm -hmm. And there's not much I can do to get you past that until I, I introduce the evidence and start convincing you that it's a good idea. Other things that I've done sometimes is I've stood behind my client and embraced him, which I think gives him a level of credibility that you don't otherwise have if it's just somebody sitting down, you know, three or four attorneys from you at a table. When I was a criminal prosecutor, I would often stand behind the defendant as I was describing what he did or what I have alleged that he has done, which again I think gave me credibility. And it's in that opening moment where the jury's kind of fascinated about what's going to happen next that you really can capture their attention through something like I just described.
0: Is there a way during jury selection perhaps for you to identify folks that might find your case interesting and your position compelling? and? Perhaps before we talk about that, can you just explain jury selection, say, in federal court?
1: So we submit ahead of time, both sides submit voir dire questions to the jury. And voir dire literally just means questions to the jury. And in those questions, what I'm trying to do as a defense attorney is to understand what the jury's thinking and what biases they bring to the courtroom. And so if any of them has been a victim of a crime, I'm less excited about having them on my jury because they are going to identify with a victim. That's just one example. As a prosecutor, you always wanted people who were victims of crimes, and you didn't want people who themselves have been convicted of misdemeanors, which might mean that they would be empathetic to the defense. So we're trying to weed that out. Some judges will allow you to also submit questions like, what news outlets do you listen to? What do you read? What sorts of shows do you watch in your in your spare time? And there was a time when all of the crime shows had really started to hit back in early 2000 late 1990s CSI, CSI right. yes. And so as prosecutors we were really trying to keep people off the jury who were CSI aficionados because they wanted DNA evidence in a fraud case. And so through those questions you hope that You can learn a little something about your jury, but not much, to be honest. And so when you've got this opening grabber, you're trying to tell them this is a case about, for example, money laundering. So Follow the Money was a money laundering case. And all the jury knew before we picked them was the statement of the case, which I think probably read something like, this is a case charging the defendant so-and-so with money laundering.
0: That's all they knew. Aside from trying to weed out folks who might not be sympathetic to your side of the V, is there a way to identify folks that will find the subject matter of the case interesting and therefore engage with the trial? I guess you can never be sure. It's a good point, and you can't be sure, but it's
1: one reason that it's really important to do the mock openings before trial and not just to fellow lawyers. So I will practice it on my husband. I will practice it on my assistant. I will grab people in the hallway and ask them what they think. And if it doesn't resonate with all of those people, I kill it. I've also been known to change my opening on a morning run the day of the start of a trial, just because all of a sudden sudden something will occur to me. I don't know that that happens with a lot of people and it's not common, but if something all of a sudden grabs your attention, There's a reason for that.
0: And after you've captured the attention of the jury with your opening line, then what? I mean, are you judicious about what you mention in your opening? During the first episode, for example, Peter mentioned that he's selective about what he includes in an opening so that jurors experience certain evidentiary delights during the course of the trial.
1: A hundred percent. When Peter said that and I was listening to the podcast, I'm sure I smiled or chuckled because that absolutely resonates with me, as I'm sure it does with you as a trial lawyer. You don't want to give them a recitation of the evidence, or they'll be bored. And frankly, you'll be bored. And that's no good, right? right? Everybody needs to be interested in what's going to come next. And so giving the jury a flavor of what's going to come that you can absolutely deliver on. I think is important to keep them interested and also maintain credibility.
0: You know, I was taught that the best opening statement is a closing argument. That might have been from the DA's office or perhaps even law school, I'm not sure, but have you heard that and do you agree with it?
1: I wouldn't disagree with it, but having tried about 30 cases, I will tell you that I stay away from the law in the opening, other than to say what the case is about. I once had a very complicated racketeering case that had 100 counts, and I did snapshot the law of racketeering for them because it was going to be a, a very, very long trial, and I wanted them to understand why they were taking up so much of their time. But I probably, Christopher, spent 20 seconds doing that mm-hmm. of what was probably a 40-minute a opening, 45-minute opening.
0: Trial lawyers and trial ad teachers often refer to the opening statement as the case roadmap. What do you think of that?
1: I think it's more like an old school triptych where you have the roadmap, but there might be construction that is unanticipated. And so you don't know where the construction is at the very beginning. You will encounter it. You will deal with it and you will move on. But yes, I do agree that it is an old school roadmap without all of the the bells and whistles that the internet now gives us.
0: <laughs> and what about the closing?
1: The closing should be a summation of all of the evidence and how it neatly fits into the law. So I would say, you haven't asked me this question, but I would say the second most important thing is the closing. Because especially in a long trial or a document-intensive trial where the jury has so much to absorb, it they need your help putting it together. And they need your help summarizing what is the most important evidence, what is corroborative of the most important evidence. And why it matters, because they're, the judge is going to instruct them on the law. And if you're telling them a bunch of, of ancillary facts that don't really fit into the jury instructions, I've got to think they get confused or annoyed, or you lose credibility. So it is a summation, not a roadmap.
0: And is that kind of how you proceed in your closing? You identify for the jurors the substantive material evidence that they ought to rely on, the evidence that's ancillary and incidental that they shouldn't really pay too much attention to, and so on. Is that kind of what you you give in your presentation?
1: Absolutely, and on the defense side, I also underscore why it matters, right? So it's not my burden to demonstrate innocence or a lack of liability in most instances, although of course there are exceptions for, for civil cases with counterclaims and whatnot. But I often spend the bulk of my closings explaining why the government didn't live up to what it said it was going to do and why it cannot sustain, especially in criminal cases, a very,
0: very high burden of proof. You know, when I think about putting on a case for trial, I think about putting together a narrative and presenting it to the jury in as compelling a way as possible. And when you're the plaintiff, in a civil case or the state in a criminal case, this seems uncontroversial and indeed necessary. But it strikes me that when you're a criminal defense attorney, you want to be careful because it's the government that has the burden of proof. So do you try to tell a story? And if you do, is there attention since you don't want to overpromise anything where you don't have a burden of proof? I suppose in some cases, the defense just might be taking the government to task on its burden.
1: It's such a good question and it, it's of course case specific, right? So in many violent crimes cases, so bank robberies, drug dealing, uh, felon in possession of a firearm, identity is a significant piece of the evidence, right? Or a piece of the case. And so the government is going to be doing its level best to explain why your client is the person who did what they accused you to do. In that instance, I think the defense primarily is focused underscoring why the government didn't meet its burden. However, there are other cases where the defense is some other guy did it, right? And then the story is about the other guy and why he was there and your client was not. In other cases, particularly fraud cases, a significant portion of the defense is that you didn't intend to do something wrong or what you did, what your client is accused of doing is immaterial to the ultimate issue. And those are all elements of the offense that the government has to prove. But I think you don't want to spend so much time saying the government didn't prove its, its element. What you want to say instead is, here's why you know that this was a mistake. You know, and put put the jury in the position of your client and explain why, for example, April 15th is a moving deadline for tax purposes. It's not that you absolutely have to file by that date. So, there's a story to be had there, right. Christopher, but it's not necessarily a beginning,
0: middle, end. Well, Lisa, so far this has been awesome, and you've given us some excellent insights into the opening statement and closing argument. I'd love to hear a bit about your practice, though, and how you got to where you are as chair of Foley's government enforcement defense and investigations practice.
1: So, I've been at Foley for 11 years. My practice is about half civil largely false claims act defense, and about half criminal, about half healthcare related, and half other. So right now that's a steady diet of uh, public corruption cases because I do live in Chicago and that is a priority of the US Attorney's Office here. But that that could change at any given moment. I came to this practice from the U.S. Attorney's Office, where, as you noted, I had been in both the civil and criminal divisions of the office in Chicago, and a, a decent portion of my time was spent on on healthcare fraud cases. And before that, I was an associate at a law firm. Uh, where I had the opportunity to try a couple of cases before joining the U.S. Attorney's Office. And as you know, once you catch the bug early in your career, it is
0: impossible to shake it. So tell me about that. So is that when you sort of found your love for trial practice, when you were an associate before the U.S. Attorney's Office?
1: Yes, that is correct. I was on the defense side of a fraud case, and it was a three-week trial in state court. And looking back on it, I think I really had no idea what I was doing. And it didn't matter. I was having so much fun. And every day that I was in that courtroom, I thought, wow, this is really better than anything else I ever could have imagined myself doing.
0: Why do you think that is? I mean, what is it about trial? I
1: think in the first podcast that you published, Peter Wang actually really nailed it. There is a performative aspect of trying a case. And while I think I'm a pretty lousy actor and I I tried it as a child and my parents steered me way away from it, (laughs) I do enjoy and always have liked being an orator. And so the opportunity to deliver a message that convinces other people that you know what you're doing I think there's a little bit of an ego to that. It's validating, but it is so important for your clients because a lot of them don't have that skill and they do all sorts of other things very well that I could never do. And so the partnership between, you know, a client who, who did or did not do something and really needs an advocate and then me who just likes being an advocate for really anybody and everybody is a really good partnership.
0: And I'd love to hear about your experience at the U.S. Attorney's Office. Can you tell us about that?
1: I was in the civil division for three years in the beginning. I had applied saying I would I would go to either section and there was an opening in civil and I took it. But I did get to try cases right away. And most of the cases that I was focused on were affirmative civil enforcement cases and largely healthcare
0: fraud. OK, so after three years in the U.S. Attorney's Office, you moved to the criminal division. Tell us about that.
1: That's correct. So in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Chicago, once you move over to the criminal division, almost everybody starts in the general crime section, which is largely reactive cases that you get when you're on duty or that an agent brings over to the office. But because I had been in the office for three years, I was placed in the the newly formed asset forfeiture and money laundering division, where I was partnering with a senior trial lawyer to follow the money, find the money, and then recover the money. And so that was my first exposure to violent crimes cases. Thereafter, I found that I really had a knack for fraud cases. I loved putting together the paper puzzle and it's what I had done in the civil division. So then I switched over to the fraud section and was there for seven years before I came over to Foley.
0: Did you get to try any fraud cases? I did. Tell us about that if if you can.
1: So I tried several fraud cases. I was on a series of cases that I had brought that were mortgage fraud cases following the 2007-2008 financial crisis and had, I think, four or five trials out of that. I also tried some money laundering cases that were paper cases, even though the funds that were laundered were largely drug trafficking proceeds. And then I tried a number of healthcare fraud cases, both False Claims Act cases when I was in the Civil Division and then as a prosecutor in the healthcare fraud section
0: at the US Attorney's office. A sprawling fraud surely can take quite some time to try. How do you keep a jury engaged throughout that kind of case?
1: It's a real challenge. And again, I'm going to I'm going to use your sports metaphor. You're not running at the exact same pace over 26.2 miles, right? You know when you've got to pick up the pace a little bit, when you can take your foot off the gas, when it's time to stop for a break. And trials are not that dissimilar. I My longest case was a 100-count racketeering case. And there was a lot of paper because a decent amount of those counts were structuring, which is basically somebody going to the bank and depositing an amount of money in a sum under $10,000. Not sexy, incredibly boring, but we had to prove it up. And so what we did was we interspersed that critical evidence between some drug dealers who had flipped... And we also had a terrorism financing aspect to the case, which we ended on in case we had lost people during the money laundering and structuring aspect of the trial. No,
0: that makes good sense rather than going through all of those in sequence and putting people, you know, risking putting people to sleep. So I want to kind of change gears a bit, Lisa. We've talked about what you think is the most important part of a trial. That's the opening statement. What do you think is the most important skill for a trial lawyer?
1: It's an outstanding question and a little bit different, right? Which is why you, I think, pointedly asked it the way that you did. This is where I think you may get a lot of views, differing views as you go through the podcast. In my view, I think the most important quality is that you have got to be nimble because there is, despite your best efforts to plan everything out, something is going to go wrong and you have to be comfortable enough that you can adjust And work that in to the trial so that it appears that you knew it was going to happen all along. And this is just another bump in the road that I'm going to jump over and resume my ordinary course. That's so
0: interesting. Let's drill down on that a bit. What exactly is it that requires you to be nimble at trial? I mean, is it unexpected testimony, an unexpected objection or argument from opposing counsel, perhaps a ruling from the judge?
1: It's everything. it's It's all of the above. and and frankly, I've encountered each of those. And it's somebody said this to me before, so I can't claim credit ple- credit for it. But I believe it. Examining a witness either on cross or on direct fact witness or experts is a little bit like a game of catch. You really hope. That when you throw the football, it lands squarely in the witness's hands and they toss it back to you and it's effortless and everybody thinks it's a beautiful game. But that's just not realistic, right? Sometimes you fumble it. Sometimes you've got to jump a little bit to the left and stretch out to make a a catch. Sometimes you hand it off to somebody else, right? All of those things happen in a trial and you've got to make it look like when you win the trial at the end, that was just part of the game.
0: Okay, so let's take a step back for a moment. When do you start to think about preparing a case for trial? Is that something you do early on in the life of a case? I
1: try and think about what my opening statement, my closing statement, and my jury instructions are going to be at the first hint that the case is headed to trial. And a lot of criminal cases don't go to trial because the stakes are so high. And the same is true of False Claims Act cases. So interestingly, Christopher, I find myself doing that later and later than I used to Mm -hmm. when I was controlling the narrative and bringing cases when I had the burden of proof as a prosecutor. But for example, when I write out a direct exam, and I'm preparing for trial, I will put into my exam in writing all of the objections that I think would be well-founded and a response. And I have that at the ready so that I hopefully am not caught off guard by a hearsay objection that I didn't see coming. I also will proactively send over things like stipulations, to the other side and say, look, you know, here are some in my head, I'm thinking, here are some things that I really hope you'll agree that we can get in. But with the government and the other side now, a lot of times I'm I'm taking the approach where I'm the overly friendly defense attorney who's actually trying to do them a favor by talking about the evidence ahead of time, when really what I'm trying to do is make sure that the things that are going to be curveballs are going to come in as seamlessly as possible.
0: That makes good sense. And you said something else that I want to focus on. You're the overly, often the overly friendly defense attorney, right? Um, Because the government, of course, at least controls whether and what plea your client may ultimately get. So I want to talk about your interactions with opposing counsel, both as a criminal defense attorney interacting with prosecutors and as a civil litigator interacting with opposing counsel in the civil context. Are you generally collegial, sort of cooperative counterpart, or is there a time and place to be, you know— enemy number 1. I mean, how do you approach interacting with your adversaries?
1: There's slight differences again depending on the case and depending on the courtroom and the posture and my adversary, but my default is very similar to Peter Wang's, which is that I know that the jury is watching me from the moment that they walk in for jury selection. And so I sit up a little bit straighter. I interact pleasantly with everybody in the courtroom, including my adversary, including the marshal service, including the judge. Because if the judge likes me and the marshals like me and opposing counsel likes me, I think I've got a little bit more credibility with the jury who thinks, hold on a minute, you're representing somebody who was accused of a crime. I'm not sure I like you. I want them to like me. That was also my approach when I was a prosecutor, is that I wanted the jury to see perhaps a slightly different interpretation of a friendly adversary, which is somebody who is so confident in their position that they can be comfortably friendly with everybody in the courtroom. And I suppose that also carries through today as a defense lawyer.
0: Were you ever concerned as a prosecutor that you shouldn't appear to be too friendly with the defense attorney since his or her client is accused of something that, you know, was so serious that your office was was prosecuting all the way to trial? I mean, did you
1: well there's a difference Christopher between being a, a collegial person and a collegial adversary and hanging out with the defendant at counsel table right i mean the defendant when i was a prosecutor didn't like me any more than i was interested sure. in being being friends with him or her but i was i tried to never be mean but that didn't mean for example that i wouldn't point at the defendant for emphasis or stand behind the defendant when I was trying to make an identification particularly hit home. Or change the inflection of my voice when I was trying to make a point. But I think that there's room to do that without being a brat.
0: I think that's right. I think that makes sense. Much of your practice now is defending or representing folks under investigation. And so how, if at all, does your varied and substantial trial practice and experience inform this new sort of investigative defense practice that you have?
1: It's still being an advocate. And even if I'm not in front of a jury, what my team is really trying to do is to convince a prosecutor not to charge our client. And that is every bit as important as the best closing argument that you could ever give to a jury, because you've got to take the evidence and the law and explain to the government who is, again, like a jury because they hold your client's fate in their hands to exercise their discretion and do what you have asked them to do. I don't think I would be as successful at doing that, you know, convincing the government to decline cases as I have been if I were not a decent trial lawyer, because it's that practice of asking for something and putting together the support for your ask that serves us well as defense attorneys, even before we get to trial.
0: And so necessarily then you are thinking about how the case might be tried when you're presenting the reasons to the government why, you know, they shouldn't charge a client.
1: That's absolutely true. And I actually remember somebody coming into my office. He was a former U.S. attorney when I was at the U.S. attorney's office, and I was considering bringing a healthcare fraud case. And I remember him sitting down and saying, Lisa, you will never win this trial. And he had me, right? That was a grabber. I mean, I thought, uh uh-oh, I I better listen to what he has to say. And he then gave me his closing argument where he put everything together. And I've learned from that. And I have used that line with prosecutors when I'm asking (laughs) them to decline cases. And I think it can be very effective as long as you don't use it 100% of the time.
0: Okay. So this has been great. This has been really insightful. But of course, we want to hear some trial war stories. And so- I'm sure you have many. What is your most memorable trial experience? Hands down, it is a
1: case that actually underscores the importance of being nimble, Christopher. It was a, a money laundering and drug trafficking trial in front of Judge Norgle, who, if you practice in Chicago, you would appreciate that he's been on the bench for a really long time and is really good at what he does. And sometimes will actually you can hear him mumbling objections when the attorneys aren't aren't raising them themselves. But in any event, we had a cooperating witness who we had advertised in opening was going to be critical to the case. And it was largely an identity case. The defendant was saying, it is not me on the wiretaps who is running this drug trafficking organization. And so we put the cooperator on the stand and asked him to introduce himself. And about three questions in, asked him to identify the defendant in the courtroom. And he looked out around the courtroom and he said, I don't see him here. And, and it was, it, I mean, I remember panicking and thinking, shot, right? yes, I remember thinking, hold on a minute. He's literally right there. How do you not see him? You worked with him for years and years, but you can't panic, right? And so my trial partner and I sort of locked eyes and walked up to the up to the, the cooperator, saw glasses in his pocket, said, ah, Mr. Witness, you wear glasses, right? And thinking, aha, we've, we've fixed the issue. And he says, yes, but they're broken. So again, you're thinking, oh my God, how do I save this, right? And my trial partner said, we need a sidebar. And we asked Judge Norgal for permission to have the cooperating witness step off the jury, off of the witness stand, yep. and walk into the well of the courtroom, thinking that if he bumps noses with the defendant, he will he will actually identify him. And the judge looks at us and he says, are you sure you want to do that? We said, yes, crossed our fingers. And sure enough, that is exactly what happened. The cooperating witness literally bumped into the defendant and said, oh my gosh, there he is. And it was a a relief, but we didn't panic. We thought about it. I definitely thought about walking out and turning in my AOSA badge, but I did not. And instead, we, we were able to make something out of it. And frankly, the identification was way more genuine. And in closing argument, we were able to say that he wasn't a stool for the government who was just going to identify the defendant because we told him where he was going to be sitting. He had to actually figure out who it was on his own.
0: I mean, that's unbelievable. And right out of a movie, a la My Cousin Vinny. Did the defense attorneys put up a stink about your proposal to bring the witness down from the witness stand, if you remember. I mean, I, I, I don't remember. I mean, they must have been just as surprised as you were. Presumably they appreciated this was a significant ID witness, right? And the witness had just seemed to blow the case in some respects. So I can imagine that it, w- it was perhaps equally earth shattering for them, but in, in a different way.
1: I would like to think that if it happened to me today, that I would have the presence of mind to jump up and immediately move for a mistrial right, right. before the prosecutor were able to correct it. But in that moment, when you're trying to balance not showing you're panicked and and to be nimble enough to adjust, a lot could go through your head.
0: I mean, that's that's unbelievable. Uh, that's a great story. And so, is that's your most memorable trial experience? Is that also your most memorable trial?
1: It's not my most memorable trial, actually. I think the there were a couple. One trial that I felt particularly good about was a healthcare fraud prosecution where. Patients had been harmed, and it was a labor of love for a good seven years of my time in the U.S. Attorney's Office. And being able to give an opening statement that reflected what I believed about what the evidence was going to show was, was very rewarding. And then the 100-count racketeering case that I've referred to a couple of times was a really memorable trial because we had so many characters who were coming in to testify. It was... um That we had indicted the defendants for laundering drug money through their car dealerships by filling out false documentation so that the cars appeared to have been legitimately purchased. And then they actually laundered the money through Iran to fund terrorism financing. Wow. And so that was particularly meaningful for a whole different reason. And the guilty verdicts really meant a lot, not just to us, but also to the community. And I think we did a lot of good in that case.
0: You know, hearing you talk about these trials and, of course, the hundred-count case that you took to trial, I'm reflecting that when you're on trial, it's all-consuming. Even being a litigator more generally, Peter was talking about how he— identifies wholly and completely with his client's position. And when you're on trial, you almost don't exist outside of the trial. Every waking moment and and even when you're sleeping, you are thinking about the trial. I mean, how do you, if at all, create some balance in your life as a
1: trial lawyer? I wish I had some key to the kingdom there that I could share with you and, and other younger lawyers who are coming up and really are hoping for the work-life balance that being a trial lawyer <laughs> might provide. But I have to say, I haven't found it because I think you're right. I think when you're in trial, it's the final performance of Hamilton, right? It is, you've got to bring your A game for as long as that performance lasts. And you really don't, you don't get to take a break because then you're not doing your client a service, regardless of whether it's an individual or an entity that you've gotten to know and love on the defense side, or if it's the community that you serve as an AUSA. I
0: think that's right. And I think it's, a special kind of per- trial lawyer is a special kind of person right who's just willing to sort of commit themselves totally and completely to the cause at hand which is to win or achieve justice.
1: I think that's right and then you can take a spectacular vacation on the backside
0: <laughs> and unplug from the world for a little bit. That's right. So one last question, what lesson or lessons have you learned from your years of trial lawyering and practice more generally that you would tell yourself, you know, before your first trial? Be
1: yourself. I think in the beginning, I watched a lot of trials because I wasn't sure how to be a trial lawyer. And I think I thought that I needed to be a little bit more adversarial than I should be. And by the time I was given the opportunity to try my first case, I think I had seen enough different styles to know that everybody is different. And everybody brings their own formula to the courtroom and everybody's got a different style. And I don't think it actually can be exactly the same every time, which is why I say that it's important to be flexible and nimble and really adjust for whatever whatever trial throws at you because there will always be something you do not anticipate. Mm-hmm. And so hopefully the combination of being true to yourself and uh, adjusting will serve you well.
0: And that kind of takes practice, right? As you try out different things over time and see what works and see what you're comfortable with. We're back to the sports analogy, which
1: which is just fine with me. But I think that's right. I think it's unrealistic to think that your first trial will be your best trial.
0: Well, Lisa, thank you so much for being with me for the second episode of the On Trial podcast. This was tremendous. And I'm extremely grateful for your time.
1: Thank you for the opportunity. And I can't wait to try a case with you, Christopher.
0: <laughs> Likewise, Lisa. Thanks so much. You've got one sentence to summarize your case, one paragraph to explain why it matters, and a few pages to explain how you're going to deliver on your first sentence. Lisa's insights into the opening statement and the attention grab in particular were just outstanding, as were her thoughts on engaging with the trier of fact. And I think I agree with Lisa that the most important skill of a trial lawyer is being nimble. I also especially liked how Lisa likened the examination of a witness to a game of catch with give and take and some inherent unpredictability. And thanks to Lisa's experiences, I will be sure to move for a mistrial if I'm ever defending a criminal case and the prosecution's ID witness forgets his or her classes. And we should all remember to be ourselves when on trial. In It's clear that the opening statement is of paramount significance and trial is an art which requires flexibility and is mastered only with practice and time. Lisa was an excellent second guest on the On Trial podcast. Please tune in next time for another interesting discussion on the art of trial with another seasoned and talented trial lawyer.
2: Thank you for listening to this production from Foley & Lardner LLP. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and is intended as a general overview. The podcast does not constitute legal advice nor solicitation to provide legal services. It's not meant to convey a legal position of Foley & Lardner LLP on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. Any opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the firm, its partners or its clients. The podcast is not intended to create and listening to the podcast does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The listener should not act upon this information without seeking counsel from a licensed attorney. Foley makes no representations or warranties of any kind, express or implied as to the content of the podcast or to its accuracy or completeness and accepts no responsibility for an individual who acts or refrains from acting based on information obtained from the podcast. In some jurisdictions, the contents of this podcast may be considered attorney advertising. If applicable, please note that prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.